Vulture to the Vulture Craft! Hello and welcome to another episode of Allgover the Podcast. I'm your host, Abdullah, and with me today is the legendary Neil Ross. Hello, Abdullah, and everybody else. And you might know Neil from Transformers, G.I. Joe, and a whole lot of other shows that <laughs> that we that we'd be here all day to cover. But luckily for you people at home who are listening to this, Neil has written a book about his his career as a voice actor, and we'll talk about that a lot in this interview. So, and don't worry about you know worry don't worry about um, not getting a chance to to read it yet because we will tell you how to get your hands on the book at the end of the show. So stick around for that. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> yeah. And um, my first question is, like, how long did it take you to, to write this? Because it's a long book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it was about a year. But I don't want to give the impression that during that year, I sat hunched over a keyboard uh, 40 hours a week. I was very self-indulgent. I did it one chapter at a time board and type it all up before I forgot it and then I'd move on to the next chapter so the whole thing took about a year and it started out as an attempt to write a monologue to do on stage <laughs> if, if I did the book on stage we'd need to have the audience there for about 16 hours so that's not very practical yeah, I mean, because that was the original pitch, wasn't it? Like, you know, it was going to be like a one-man show where you just talk for hours about yeah. your career. Yeah, well, I did a personal appearance with Rob Paulson. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He was in Animaniacs and uh, many other shows. Fabulously talented guy. He does a podcast called Talkin' Tunes. And some of the shows he does live from venues, and he invited me and several other people to appear with him at the Improv in in uh, in Los Angeles. And uh, I just had a ball up there. I, I it was so much fun, and I thought, wow, maybe if I wrote a monologue and I could book myself into I don't know where some venues, and I would do the monologue and then take questions from the audience. And none of that ever happened, but that was the beginning of the book. I started to write this monologue, and it just got out of hand. And was it hard, like you know, writing down like the specific events, like trying to recall all the specific events that you? That you, in, in your career that you wanted to include in the book? Because I know, like, there was a lot of stuff that was cut, that was obviously had to be cut out because, you know, it doesn't even, like, because there are a lot, a lot of shows that you've been on that you don't discuss in the book. And I, th and I thought that that's, that you would have probably just, like, discussed, like, Transformers and, and G.I. Joe because those would have been more familiar with the people who are more familiar with your work. As that was to the people. idea. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't cover everything I did. So I sort of... I divided it into two categories, you know, based on uh, fans that I've interacted with at conventions. I pretty much know what the most popular shows are that I was involved with. And then I wrote about some others that are not that well uh, remembered, uh, largely because they gave me some great stories to tell. And hopefully, uh, you know, they were uh, they made it worth including shows that people maybe didn't remember or hadn't actually seen. But those were the two criteria, if, either if, if it's a really popular show or if it's if there's a great story attached to it. I mean, because I was shocked you mentioned Inhumanoids, and I'm like, wow, Inhumanoids. <laughs> Very few people remember that show. 
Yeah, yeah, it's funny. We did it right after Transformers and uh, G.I. Joe, and a lot of the same voice actors were in Inhumanoids. Wally Burr directed it. I mean, same studio, same everything, but uh, we did not capture lightning in a bottle with that show uh, the way we did with uh, the other two. Don't know. I mean, because that's the thing. It's like you don't know what what what's going to be successful or not. Because I think, I think because you know, I remember like I think you I think it's in this in the book, but I don't remember properly. But I think when you walked into to to you know into the you know recording sessions of Transformers, you you were I think you were you guys were told like you were just recording for what is what was essentially like a a glorified toy commercial and that no one was going to really care, you know, about the quality of the performances. Well, that's not really what basically uh, both of those shows, GI Joe and transformers. And I guess some of the others were accused of being nothing more than 30 minute long commercials for toys. Uh, not, you know, the people we work with didn't say that, but the critics said that. Yeah. Cause I remember that was like, the the main the main criticism of those shows was, well, these are just like thirty minute toy commercials. These aren't like their derivative tripe that no child should watch because they're just like promoting like con- consumerism. Because I remember that was the huge argument of the time of you know they were just like pr- promoting co- consumerism over you know storytelling and that's a whole other topic. But I remember that. But was... I, well, I think I think the critics got it wrong, uh, either by intention or luck. Uh, somehow, in the case of G.I. Joe and Transformers, uh, the people at Sunbow put together this incredible team of, uh, I don't want to leave anybody out, you know, writers, animators, actors, directors, producers, and somehow the whole became greater than the sum of its parts. And even though maybe the guys at the top only cared about selling toys, something better than that emerged. And my proof of that is the fact that now, something like 35 years since these shows were on the air, uh, there are entire conventions based around G.I. Joe and Transformers. Uh, fans show up. Uh, they still love the shows. They, they, they can quote lines from the shows. They'll, they'll sit there and discuss uh, plot points. Uh, I mean, it... it these shows became far more than toy commercials. That's all I can say. The other part of it was that at the time that we did these shows, uh, the the general uh, consensus among people who produced these shows was that they would not last more than two or three years, and then their audience would outgrow them, and the new crop of kids coming along wouldn't want these shows. They'd want their own shows, and so... Everybody said, listen, everything you're doing uh, is going to be forgotten in a few years. And uh, we had no reason to think otherwise. You know, if we had said to somebody that uh, an animated show is going to be created and stay on the air for, what is it, over 30 years? I'm talking about The Simpsons. They would have said, you're insane. It never happened. I think the longest show in those days that had had lasted uh, was uh, the Smurfs that ran for seven seasons. And, uh, you know, that was amazing at the time. So, yeah, we were, we were sort of thought we were writing on water, but it turned out we really weren't in the, in the final analysis. 
And, and it's weird because, like, you know, everyone just wrote these to- these um, shows off as, like, toy commercials. But, like, you look at you look at now and how big these – they're basically, like, just massive franchises because they're recognizable properties. And to this day, Hasbro still churning out toys of, of the same characters from the 80s, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. Yeah, it's an amazing, uh, amazing phenomenon. And, of course, the Transformers movies and the G.I. Joe movie, it um... – it all helps to keep it in the public eye, but the fans of the original animated shows from the mid '80s, uh, they 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 have such a reverence for the show that it's quite humbling, really. And you know, I, I've I've talked to fans whose lives were hugely influenced by these shows. They were you know, latchkey kids in some cases. In some cases, they were in family situations that were less than desirable. And I've had people come up and say, I got the basis of my moral instruction from your show, not from my parents or anybody else. I got it from your show. And as a result, I went out into the world and I wanted to be like Duke or Flint, hopefully not shipwreck. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I joined the military, I had a wonderful career in the military, or I joined law enforcement, and I've had a whole career in law enforcement, and none of this would have been possible without your show, and you sit there, you know, your jaw drops, you think this, we had no idea when we did these shows what kind of an influence they would have, but apparently they did. I mean, it's interesting, because you don't know what, what effect your, you know, you don't know, like, what the final product's going to look like, first of all, because you're just given, like, a vague description of the character and what their, what their role is, and you just go in there, record your lines, and then you're done, and then, you know, you hope that the product, you know, lives up to the expectations of, of the people who, you know, are hyped for it, but, you know, yeah. Well, to me, that, that was all out of my hands, <clears throat> as far as the visual, you know. To me, it was almost like doing a radio drama. That's what I focused on was the sound. Uh, and, uh, you know, trying to uh, tell the story as best we could. And you just sort of hope uh, that the visual part uh, comes up to the standards that you've tried to establish with your voice. But you have no control over it, of course. And that also comes in with the book because you you cover your your illustrious radio career and you talk about how, you know, you grew up listening to to radio dramas and and all the and all the stuff that used to be on radio before television came along and made that all obsolete. And then it became like, you know, just music. Yeah. Yeah, I, I managed to hear the tail end of what's called the golden age of radio and um I think it had a, I know it had a huge, huge influence on me. Uh, theater of the mind, as they call it. And I think it's coming back in a strange way. Uh, I haven't really listened to a lot of this, but my daughter tells me about some of these podcasts that she listens to, and they sound just like radio dramas, except they're not being broadcast on radio. You're getting them online, but it's the same idea. Theater, you just sit there and the actors do their thing and you make the picture up in your mind. And usually, if you have a fairly good imagination, the picture that your mind creates is infinitely better than anything they could put on a screen, I guarantee you. Yeah, yeah, it, I mean, because I listen to, like, you know, a couple radio drama podcasts and I'm just, like, surprised at how entertaining it is. 
because you're just like yeah, listening but... to, to voices, but they're telling a really good, compelling story that I just can't, I just can't stop listening to it. I'm like, I'm at the end, a little, like I'm literally at the edge of my seat. I'm like, oh my God, what's going to happen next? Because this is uh, yeah. really, inter- really entertaining. And I'm just kind of sad that, that, you know, that radio has turned into like this toothless tripe that it is today because there's this like whole market that that that's um that's not being explored upon you know by radio but we're exploring it with the but that's the the beauty of the internet is like there you know you're seeing people who are passionate about bringing the stuff back in some some in another form and i think that's great yeah the 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 transition that happened when television came along and i was just a child while this was happening i found out about it all later when i did some reading and research but there was this funny transition period where uh some of the shows were broadcast on radio and television Uh, jack benny for instance would do a radio show and then turn around and do a completely different show on television that's two shows a week one of them you know television the other one radio I mean, that had to be a scramble for the performers, the writers. And it only lasted for a few years, and then they just said, it's just pointless to keep doing the radio thing. The audience is now all over on television, so they pulled the plug on the radio stuff. But there were a number of shows that that, that did both radio and television for a, a couple of years. And then once uh, everything... You know, in the way of comedy and drama and game shows and soap operas, et cetera, et cetera. Once they all migrated over to television, there were actually people saying, well, maybe we just sign these radio stations off the air because what, you know, what are they going to broadcast? What are they going to do now? And uh, there had been this show that was quite successful called The Make Believe Ballroom. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. No, I haven't. Yeah, it was done in uh, New York by a guy named Martin Block and in Los Angeles by a guy named Al Jarvis. I don't think it was ever done nationwide. I'm not positive. But anyway, it sounded like a remote broadcast from the swankiest supper club imaginable. You know, you would hear uh, glasses clinking and plates clanking. And then the announcer would say, and now Frank Sinatra is taking to the bandstand, backed up by Nelson Riddle's band, and he's going to sing Stardust or whatever. He would sing, you would hear applause, and then more clinking of plates. And well, now uh, Benny Goodman and his orchestra are coming onto the stage, and they're going to do it. Well, the whole thing was done in a studio with sound effects and records. There was no make-believe ballroom, although some people thought there was. They would call the station going, how do we get tickets? <laughs> how do we go to the make-believe ballroom? Well, you can't. It's make-believe. But this sort of signaled the industry, look, essentially it's a guy in a room spinning records and people are tuning in. It gets good ratings. So maybe if we just hire some personalities and have them spin records, maybe we can salvage some of the audience and uh, – Walter Winchell, I think, the influential columnist, he's the guy who came up with the term disc jockey. He was quite good at coming up with little cuties like that. He's the one who who came up with the term disc jockey. And and then, of course, the, the transistor came along, <clears throat> which made it feasible to mass-produce relatively inexpensive car radios and portable radios that the kiddies could carry around. And that sort of helped save radio, too. 
But that, that's kind of what happened in, in a very simplistic uh, version. I mean, radio is still around, but, like, it's not the radio either of us, like, grew up listening to. I mean, because, like, I remember, like, the radio I, I used to listen to, like, you know, actually had people having actual conversations, actually having, you know, debates that had, you know, different viewpoints instead of just, like, two people sitting around agreeing with each other, keeping yeah. it safe, hoping, like, not to offend anybody. It's just... I just really hate what radio's become now. It's just so, so tripe, so tripe. Yeah, well, there's a number of reasons for that, but I don't know if we want to get into it. Yeah, I don't know. I'll be here all day if we did. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's it's an interesting, I mean, it's an interesting, you know, part of your career because you came from, you know, a radio background and then you did like animation and then you went to, you went on to host the, Os I mean, you went on to do, to be like the announcer for the Oscars and that was a, that must have been a huge deal, like going from, from like radio to the Oscars. Yeah, I mean, when I was a humble disc jockey toiling away in various medium and smaller towns, if you had said to me someday you're going to be the announcer on the Academy Awards, I'd have said you need to be locked up. Uh, but it happened, uh, amazingly enough. But yes, the first uh, first part of my career was spent as uh, one of Mr. Winchell's kitties. I was a disc jockey. And um, oh, there's a whole story about how that happened, and I can get into that or not. I, I, up to you. I mean, it's it's you know, I th I would rather like like leave some of it like to to people who want to read the book because it's a it's sure. a it's such a such a great read, and I'm like you know I could sit here and tell you how great it is, but like. I'm not do I'm not going to do it justice cuz you guys have to read this book. It's really good. It's a great view of what what the recording sessions for Transformers and GI Joe were like and it's a great window into the past of what, you know, radio was like back in those days and I think it it it's not going to do you know, I can sit here and tell you how great it is, but you guys have to read it. You have to read it. It's it's a it's a great read. It really is. I was very fortunate I hit the sweet spot of two uh, great businesses that aren't so great anymore. I was a disc jockey at a time when that actually meant something. And then I got into what I consider the golden age of voiceovers. I was a little late. I think the, the golden age of voiceovers was probably the 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. And I didn't get in until... Uh, the early 80s, but still I had a nice 20-plus uh, nice year run in what was a wonderful, wonderful business. So I'm very grateful, and hopefully uh, I made the, the story informative and interesting enough to where people will want to read it. No, I mean, because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, an, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like obsessed with, because like reading through this, I realized like, not there's not a lot of recorded history of this era, you know, from from a, from the behind the scenes standpoint. Like you know, we, you and I can sit here and talk about all these old cartoons till till you know till till the end of time. But like, there's very few you know historians who are keeping like historical records of these <laughs> of of that era, and it's kind of sad, really. It really is because it's such a yeah, it's such a. There. There's not a lot. I know somebody put out a, what did he call it? I forget it. It's more like a listing of shows. 
it's just it, you know he'll say transformers and then he'll describe the basic uh, premise of the show and he'll list who directed it and who who voiced it but that's it it it's more like a i don't know what you would call it a an encyclopedia of uh, animation yeah but, but there's nothing yeah, about but the, the behind yeah stuff. but but there was like very little like behind the scenes stuff cuz it's like you know, unless you ask someone about what what those recording sessions were like, then you're you're flat out of luck because it's like there's no history, like there's no point of reference to go. Oh, I'm gonna do research on, you know, this area of uh, this area this era of radio, but there's no frame of reference for it. Like there's just no, no. frame of reference. It's just all blank. That's an interesting point. I may have a a very unique book in that sense because I'm. I know other voiceover people have written books. Uh, I mentioned Rob Paulson. He's written a book, and I'm embarrassed to say I have not read it. Uh, now, he here. May, I haven't read it. So yeah, sorry. he may go into, uh, into uh, great detail on what went on in the studio. I don't know. I should actually make an effort to, to pick it up and read it. <laughs> no, but, I mean, because I'm interested in, like, that, that era of animation because it's just, like, very – like it's just talked about from a from a very surface level. Like you know, whenever like you bring up they bring up Transformers nowadays, it's always like, you know, yeah, the show changed the way you know it just was the beginning of the brand, and that's it. Like they barely touch upon what those recording sessions were like and what the animation team had to go through to bring most of those most of those things to life. It's just like the basic bullet points, the basic like surface level mm -hmm. stuff of who the characters are. You know, the Optimus Prime death. You know Frank Welker and and Peter Cullen. You know just the basic surface level stuff, and that's that's fine and all. But you know I kind of really want to know more about it. You know. Sure. No, I understand. No, I've been frustrated when I would read biographies of of uh, you know movie and television actors, and they would say something like, "And then in 1934, I was in Gone with the Wind." Uh, after that, and I'm going, don't you have any stories about making this movie? Do you not have anything funny or interesting or it's, it's and I would be endlessly frustrated. As I said, when I would read these biographies, they go on and on and on about stuff I'm not interested in. But it's, when it comes to the making of a movie, they don't seem to be interested in describing the process or, or what went on. So I thought in this book, damn it. I'm going to get into the nuts and bolts, and that's what I tried to do. And it, and it's interesting because, like, you go through, you know, everything. Like, you know, most people don't know this, but, you know, the original Voltron was a Japanese anime that was brought into the West by people who were not familiar with Japanese anime, who thought it was a kid's show, but then when they saw the final product, they were like, oh, no, we can't show this to kids. Oh. So so they had to like re-edit everything, and that's where you guys came in. You had to come in and like redo all the dialogue to make it kid friendly. Yeah. No, Voltron was a real. I can't imagine what went on. They, as you say, when they got a look at what they had, they bought two existing, actually three existing shows, but they only used two of them. And when they took a look at what they had, they realized this just isn't going to work. Because yeah, originally they, they just thought, we'll just revoice these things and put them on the air. But they realized that wasn't going to work. So they created original scripts, and then they had to comb through the footage they had 
to find footage that that backed up these stories they'd created. I, I mean, I can't imagine. It had to be a maddening process. But that's how they did it. And then we came along and did the voice work, and the rest is history. And ironically enough, like, you look at, I mean, that basically gave birth to anime dubbing as we know it now, because that was the first case of, you know, a cartoon being imported from Japan and being dubbed, essentially dubbed in the States. So that's where the yeah, whole... Think about that. There might be another one I'm not aware of, but that feels like it probably was the first. Yeah, because this was like, you know, early 80s, you know, mid-80s, so... And Akira didn't come out until, like, late 80s, so, you know, Voltron beat... You know, Voltron was the first one to, to like, you know, come in and, you know, mm-hmm. to, to, you know, become... Uh, become completely different from the um, Japanese version because the Japanese version was was you know had a different title and was uh, completely different from the um, yeah. from Voltron so so yeah I mean you know and and you just and that's that's the stuff that kind of fascinates me like just going through reading about stuff like that and not a lot of people know about that and and just like reading reading this stuff and going wow man you know this is what I wouldn't give to be a fly in the wall during those some of those record sessions you you know you talk about in the book, just because it it sounds like a lot of fun. It must have been a lot of fun to to be around the original um, Transformers cast because sadly most of those people are no longer with us, unfortunately. Well, no, I think most of us are around. <clears throat> of course, uh, poor Chris Lotta passed away quite young. I believe he was only forty five or forty six. But most of uh, most of the cast is still around, you know. We still have Frank, Peter, uh, Michael Bell, yours truly, uh, Alan Oppenheimer, and now I'm going to leave some names. Don Galvezin is still around. I mean, uh, Arthur Burkhart. No, we're we're still <laughs> we're still hanging in there. No, I mean, yeah, but like you know, unfortunately, like you know, some people are you know, you know, the larger character actors like you know Chris Lada and and Scatman Carruthers are unfortunately no longer with us, and it's just, right. it's such a, it's such a shame because like those those two guys you know brought so much you know so much life, to 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 those characters, and it just annoys me like people just write it off as oh well it was just a toy commercial no, like because because you know. The Starscream character would not have worked if it would if it were any if it were voiced by anyone else, but Chris Lada because Chris Lada was that character, he brought that character to life. Yeah, he made it his own. He really did. And uh, as I say in the book, there have been people, a relative handful of people that I have run into in my life who I have thought, boy, with with the right combination of uh, breaks, uh, this person could go all the way. And I really thought Chris was going to become very, very famous for what I didn't know exactly because he did so many different things. In addition to acting, he was also a very polished stand-up comedian. And maybe that would have been what shot him to fame. But, uh, yeah, I honestly thought there'd come a time when I'd say, you know, I used to know that guy. I used to work with him. And they're going to, and they'd say, oh, you're kidding. No way. But unfortunately, he uh, he died before that happened, and uh, yeah, we'll never know. And I mean, you talk about in the book about you know just watching him work, and I'm like, wow, that must have been just such an amazing experience, because like, you know we can't, you know, we can't do that anymore because he's sadly no longer around. 
you know, and that's just sad. You know, what I've always said about him is he gave 100%, 100% of the time. I never saw him phone it in. I mean, none of us phoned it in, but Chris, I mean, sweating, uh, <laughs> breathing hard. I mean, whatever Wally wanted, he gave him. And uh, sometimes it was take after take after take after take, and he just he just kept going. It was it was astonishing. And that's another thing that kind of annoys me is like you know I think to to me like Wally Burr is one of those like unsung heroes of animation because he really I I know he's a polarizing figure because like some people like will say they loved working with him, some people will outright say they hated those sessions, but. I think, you know, without him, we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't get, like, we wouldn't get, like, people coming in and, and taking the job, taking it seriously and, 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 and showing that, you know, hey, something, we can have, like, really good performances in animation. It doesn't have to be just people coming in and phoning it in for 22 minutes or whatever. Yeah. Well, he was... Uh... I think probably one of the hardest working, most prepared uh, directors I ever worked for. <clears throat> uh, he would frequently arrive bleary-eyed in the morning because he'd been up till 4 a.m. Uh, going over scripts and making notes. And he had the whole show in his head. And the challenge was to now get those performances out of us and onto the tape, which is what we were using in those days. And he just uh, wouldn't settle for anything less. And so his sessions were the longest of any director that was out there at the time. And some people did become very frustrated with him. But I think, uh, you know, the proof is in the pudding. There's really two shows that I'm remembered for, maybe three if you throw in Voltron, while he was not involved in Voltron. But the two best-remembered shows I've been involved in were G.I. Joe and Transformers, and Wally Voice directed both of them, and I think he would be entitled to say, you know, maybe all that uh, all that time and effort was worth it because these are the shows people revere, these are the shows people remember. And, you know, he might be right. Yeah, because I, I don't think, you know, the show would have been half as good if, if it was someone else directing because I don't think anyone else would have got it. Like, they would have just seen this weird concept of these robots that can transform into whatever and having an endless war, and you're like, okay, what is this? <laughs> well, somebody had to have it. You know, I've, I've told people, well, I say in the book, if you're a fan of uh, Transformers, the, the original animated series, uh, you know far more about the show than I did when I worked on it. I mean, I got cast, and I came in. It was already an ongoing franchise. I don't know how many episodes they had in the can before my character showed up, but nobody explained anything to us. Uh, there wasn't any sort of Bible you could go read. <laughs> you just showed up, got in front of a mic, and tried to do what Wally told you. And it all worked out fine, I guess, because he at least knew what the hell the show was about. <laughs> but... Uh, Although there were times, I remember him a couple of times saying, um, all right, now this, and then, oh, God, I can't describe what's going on. Would you guys mind if I just gave you line readings? Most of the time, actors don't appreciate line readings. But in this instance, we said, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. 
will will be and he would he would actually do the line the way he wanted it and then we would just parrot it back to him because he said the action was so convoluted he couldn't explain it <laughs> well i mean he wasn't wrong because some of the action sequences on that show were really weird <laughs> yeah it was uh, an interesting phenomenon my theory on the show is that uh, human beings love to anthropomorphize non-human things. When you're a little kid, it's animals, you know, talking animals, uh, Winnie the Pooh and all that sort of thing. Then you get a little older and you anthropomorphize robots. And I think even when we become adults, we're fascinated by the concept that a non-human entity could have human emotions, hence the popularity of characters like uh, Mr. Data in Star Trek and um, some of the robots in uh, Star Wars. So that's just my dumb theory, but... I mean, yeah, I mean, when you think about it, like, most franchises are just like, what if this, you know, inanimate object had feelings, and what if it went on adventures, and, and so on mm -hmm. and so on. I mean, that's, you know, the basic premise, but... You know, I mean, they weren't just like robots that could transform into anything. I mean, that was the basic pitch, but there was the war. There was like the whole, you know, low on resources and, and you know, the Decepticons plan to, to win the war and all that stuff. I mean, there's just like a lot of really deep lore that was just established over the years. And it's it just became its own thing. It wasn't just, hey, giant robots, you know. No, I think it, it was Game of Thrones in outer space. <clears throat> I don't know. It was just good storytelling. I mean, the the, the folks that wrote those, uh, Flint Dilly and Buzz Dixon and um, Ron Friedman and some other folks, and they don't get enough credit. I mean, without the writers, we're just six guys in a room looking at each other, you know. Uh, somebody's got to come up with a storyline. Somebody's got to come up with dialogue, and the writers do that. And some actors seem to feel like the script is something that falls out of the ceiling half an hour before they show up, and they forget that somebody had to confront the blank page and create something on it. And so uh, I always try to give credit to the writers, because without them, we wouldn't have had a show, I'll, I'll guarantee you. Uh, no, I mean, they, they had a tough job because they, it wasn't like a seasonal thing. Like when they went, when they were told by Hasbro, we want 40, 40 episodes in this amount of time, in this short amount of time done by blah, 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 before the toy line hits. And you're like, oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly what deadlines they were under. I, you know, on both shows, I kind of came in while it was already an ongoing thing. But uh I've done a number of uh, panels uh, over the years with Flint and with Buzz and uh, and Ron, and uh, they're they're very they tell some really interesting stories. You ought to think about booking uh, booking all three of those guys if you can, because <laughs> I'm sure they could. I, I'm sure they could tell you some really interesting stuff about the um, you know the, the the creation of the uh, of the show. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, I've thought about it, but then I, I realized like that would be like eight hours long because <laughs> I've got a, like a lot of, you know, Transformers related questions about the lore and, and all that stuff and the movie and, and all the all the stuff. But, you know, it, maybe 
You know, you never know. You never know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would recommend it. I really would. Because they do have some great stories. Yeah. Because, again, those are other people that, you know, have, you know, history with, with that um, with that show. And I think, I think Flint just put a book out. Flint Dilly. It's uh, last name D-I-L-L-E. And uh, yeah, I believe he has a book, and and he, that might be really interesting to fans of the shows. I I actually did not know that. I have to now look look into that because I'm actually interested now in that. Yeah, for, I'm sorry, I forgot what the title is, but I'm sure if you put something clever into Mister Google, like a book by Flint Dilly, something will pop up. <laughs> Books written by Flint Dilly. There you go. <laughs> Um, it. I mean, looking back at your, you know, illustrious career, do you, do you do you feel like you've done you've done all you can as a, as an actor, or do you feel like there's more you can that you want to accomplish that you haven't already accomplished? Hmm. Before I forget, there's one other book. Uh, Ron Friedman has a book, and it, with a provocative title, this one I do remember. Uh, I think it's something like this. I'm the man who killed Optimus Prime because he wrote that. I don't know if he wrote the entire Transformers movie, but he wrote uh, at least he wrote the death of, of Optimus Prime. So that might be a book uh, people would be interested in. Anyway, what have I what have I got left to do? Um, you know, that's a. That's a thought that uh, I sort of uh, grapple with as I wander around in my uh, COVID-19 self-imposed isolation. And sometimes I think, oh, you greedy so-and-so, you've had a wonderful career, you got to play all these great characters. I mean, what the hell more do you want? But then I find myself wondering if there isn't another show, another part, something I could really sink my teeth into and um, you know uh, so I'm open to uh, whatever happens from here on out and we'll see but if nothing more happens I'm profoundly grateful for the stuff that I got to do uh, I've, I've had a 10 times the career I ever thought I would and I'm very grateful for that I mean, you weren't just stuck to doing, like, one thing, because a lot of people, like, usually just get stuck into doing, like, cartoon voices or promos or whatever. But, you know, you, you're one of the few people who can say you pretty much did it all in terms of voiceover. Yeah, to steal a term from uh, Jack Angel, another Transformers G.I. Joe actor, uh, I, I'm voiceital. Uh, yeah, I'm, fortunately, I'm relatively competitive in just about every phase of voiceovers be it promo trailer be it uh, narration be it animation be it commercials be it dubbing i do a reasonably good job of all of that stuff and that's made for a really interesting career you know some folks only do promos and they make a lot of money but i think god that has to be boring after a while because you're basically saying doing the same read over and over again. You're just plugging in different names and shows. And it just has to get dull, I would think. Whereas I'm bouncing around. I'm doing a game here, a cartoon there, a commercial there, maybe a promo here, maybe dubbing something. It, it, it just it, it makes it a, a far more interesting life, I think. So that's another 
thing I'm grateful for, the fact that I was able to able to experience almost every phase of this business. The only thing I hadn't done up until fairly recently was game shows. And I just, uh, I've been the announcer on uh, the game show Press Your Luck for the last two seasons. So uh, <laughs> at, the, at this late stage of my career, uh, I finally got to do a game, a game show. So That's another thing. Again, like you've pretty much done it all in terms of voiceover. And that's, pretty, you know, not a lot of people can say that. And I think that's pretty, pretty cool. I have no complaints. I'll tell you. No, I mean, because, you know, not a lot of people can say, hey, uh, I created, like, all these, you know, memorable characters that people still talk about to this day, and I get to be, like, a, and, and I get to be, like, an announcer on a game show. I mean, how many people can say that? Not a lot. <laughs> well, it, um, it's funny, somebody unearthed a, a, an air check of me on a radio station in San Diego back in 1975, and they said it to me, and I listened to it. And it wasn't as bad as I feared, nor as good as I would have hoped. <laughs> and I just found myself thinking, I'm so glad I got into voiceovers. Because I never really clicked in radio for one reason or another. But I really think I hit a few home runs in the voiceover business. And it's nice to have that, you know, in your background. That stuff I can genuinely be proud of, and I'm, I'm not, you know, cringing when I listen to it, the way I do with some of these old radio air checks. It's like, oh my God, why did I say that? <laughs> Must have been out of my mind. Well, I mean, it was the '70s. It was a different time. <laughs> and I was a different person, you know. I was, uh, what was I, 29 or 30, something like that. And... And thought I was a lot hipper than I was, and <laughs> ah well. I mean, isn't that every you know disc jockey like they think they're much cooler than they actually are? <laughs> That's not a bad observation. Um, yeah. I mean, very few of them are like really you know you know very few of them have like really memorable personalities. They're just like on autopilot most of the time. Well, you, you, I don't think are old enough to go back to a time when they kind of did have very, very strong personalities. Uh, some of the guys in the 60s and 70s were pretty amazing. And uh, gradually that, that kind of DJ fell out of favor and was replaced by people who, in, in my opinion... Uh, we're not as compelling, and that happened for a variety of reasons. But back in the 60s and 70s, there were some pretty amazing people on the radio, I must say. I mean, yeah, 60s and 70s, I would imagine, because, like, you know, radio was still, like, the thing. You know, television wasn't, you know, hadn't taken over yet. Well, television had taken over, but, you know, I'm talking about music DJs. Ah, yeah, okay, okay, that makes sense. If you wanted to hear a record... You either took your hard-earned money and went down to the record store and bought it, or you had to listen to the radio. I mean, you know, and, and that's part of the reason that DJs were as important as they were back then, because they were the conduit to the music, especially this new uh, rock and roll that uh, kids craved. <laughs> 
And, um, you know, now uh, you want to hear a song, you tap some buttons on your smartphone and it's playing, you know, it takes you 30 seconds. So who the hell needs a DJ? But back then we were, um, in a way, we were kind of celebrities and kind of special and it was a great time. I mean, I'm not, you know, I mean, you know, fair play to the people who made, you know, careers out of out of doing that. I just I just think that, you know, in terms of like, you know, personality, you could tell like from listening to 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 some like who are, who had the talent and who didn't. It's just my point. Mm-hmm. I mean, but, you know, you, you know, if it's it's, you know, I mean, if you got, you know, fair play to people who made, you know, a living, you know, just counting down numbers or counting down popular songs. I mean, that's that was a thing that existed that back when radio meant something. Fair play to them. Go by money. Uh, would have to be Casey Kasem. Yeah, I mean, that American Top 40 made, you know, millions over the years. Now, he didn't get all of that, but he got a nice chunk. And... Um, that's basically what he did. He counted them down. Here's number thirty-seven. You know, <laughs> but but people loved it. People loved it, and uh, he, he had a wonderful career. I mean, and you know, yeah, he was also on Transformers. <laughs> oddly enough, so there you go. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. That's. Uh... <laughs> yeah, he. I. I was not. I did not know him. You know. We worked together a couple of times and and chatted briefly, but I I, I didn't know him. But I, I have tremendous respect for him. He had a you know a a really strong work ethic, and he came along at a time when the guys with the big booming voices like this—that's what they wanted in radio—and Casey didn't have a voice like that. He did not have an unpleasant voice, but it wasn't one of those quote-unquote radio voices. And yet he uh, he managed to uh, end up in Los Angeles on KRLA. And then he went out and he created a voiceover career for himself. And then a couple of fellas got the idea for American Top 40, and they picked him to host it. And he grabbed the ball and ran with it. And um, as I say, I did not know him, but everybody that... I talked to who did just said he was a he was just a hard working straight ahead guy uh, and that he he richly deserved all his success because he he earned it so yeah I mean because he was really talented and you know he pretty much like him and Frank Welker like in you know people like him Frank Welker Das Butler you know they were they pretty much like made Hanna-Barbera what it is you know back in the day yeah, well, Casey came along a little later, and I guess Frank did too. I mean, we should mention Don Messick. He was a huge part of the Hanna Barbera. And he was also in Transformers. There you go, Don uh, Messick. <laughs> and a June Foray, and um, yeah, so wonderful people. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's just you know, I, well, I mean, we could sit here all day and talk about the past, but. I, I'm, I'm afraid we're at that time where we gotta wrap it up because nobody wants to listen to us talk about old cartoons for an hour. But there you go. Um, so, so Neil, where can people find your book? 
The simplest thing to do would be to go to a website that I have created, and uh, it's got all the information there, and that's www.neilbook.com, N-E-I-L-B-O-O-K.com. The book's on Amazon and uh, Audible and Apple, and I don't know if you have a website or anything, I can send you links to those if you like. But if all else fails, uh, www.neilbook.com, and the book is titled Vocal Recall, A Life in Radio and Voiceovers. And and if you want, you can also pick up the audio version narrated by you and by Neil himself, which is a which is really great because he does the voices as well. So, <laughs> yes, I won a highly competitive audition to be the voice of the book, and uh, thousands of people were vying for the vying for the chance, but I won the audition. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Uh, well, th- thank you so much for taking the time up to come on and chat about radio and old cartoons. It's been fun. Oh, thanks. yeah, thanks for asking me. I enjoyed it. Yeah, and if you want to come back, yeah, anytime. We'll be, you know, it's fun. it was fun. this was fun. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, bye. thanks. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.